Hey there, welcome to the Cranites Insider Podcast. I am your host, Sean Bernemenev. I am very grateful that you are here tonight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to all the many thousands of listeners at this point who have joined us for this journey. Thank you to those who subscribed, who've shared. We wouldn't be here without you. Tonight, we are very, very excited to share an episode featuring an interview with Mrs. Dina Gorkin. She's well-known in our community. She does many, many things related to Chinuch, but she's perhaps most well-known for her role as principal of Benos Chumash High School. Tonight on the show, we go into what makes Benos Chumash different, why Benos Chumash exists in the first place, what's the need, what's the opportunity, what's the problem, and some of the details of what it takes to try to educate our young girls, our young women today. So stay tuned for that coming up very, very shortly. If you have not yet subscribed to the podcast, now is a great time to do that. Take out your phone, go to the podcast app of your choice, and hit the subscribe button. Or you can just keep listening to the show on Info when episodes are posted. We love that too. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. As always, if you have any comments or questions or concerns, you can send an email to podcast.cranist.info and we will respond to your question or comment or concern. If you have a question for Mrs. Gorkin or for any of our other guests, please send it in. And your question will be featured in our wrap-up episode coming very, very shortly. So with all that out of the way, let's get to our interview. Featuring Mrs. Dina Gorkin. Tonight on the Chronic Insider, we are very grateful to have in the studio Mrs. Dina Gorkin. Dina Gorkin is the principal of Benos Chemish Academy, is director director of community education at NCFJE Operation Survival, teacher at Bishopka Seminary, and she does workshops and private consultations on the topics of parenting and education. Mrs. Gorkin, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. So that's a lot of hats, but they pretty much all relate to, I think, young girls, young women, their education, the communities, the parenting that's around them. Yes, that's correct. Those, that's the common thread. So if we can start off, just a little bit of history of how Habnos Chomish got started and your career to this point. So my career dates back to my early education. Um, when I was six years old, I had a wonderful teacher. Her name was is Mrs. Hadassah Karlbach, and she's the one who taught me how to read Hebrew. And she had such a passion for teaching that came across so clearly in every moment of every day that I, at the age of six, looked at her and said, that's what I want to do when I grow up. So I knew very early on what I wanted to do. And my passion took different forms over the years. Um, When I finally got out of seminary, I decided I wanted to go into special education. And I started working in a special ed school, and then I branched out to other things, seminary, etc. And I landed in Beishrifka High School. I believe it was 2000, around 2000, around that time. And I enjoyed being there very much. I had a wonderful experience there. I worked with girls individually. I taught ninth grade and had many conversations with Mara Tachtal about students who are falling through the cracks, students whose needs could not be met in the larger school environment. And what did that look like at the time in Beis Rivka, falling through the cracks? Um, There were, for example, I'm thinking of the, the last year that I taught the ninth grade, I had approximately 26 students and I had one student whose head was always down in class 
when I came in, I tried to engage with her. Usually her head would be up for a few minutes and then down again. I had other students in, um, in another class, it's actually a Chumash class, who were struggling with Chumash and who really needed more personal attention than the, the big class could offer. And there were just a number of students in that grade that when I spoke to them privately, because I was a Machanechas, uh, they said to me, oh, yeah, you know, we're really just not happy in school. Or I remember very clearly one girl saying to me, I'm just biding my time here. And I, you know, I'm not really that interested in anything that goes on here. I'm just waiting to get out of high school and do my thing. And I thought, wow, what a waste of four years. <laughs> it's a waiting yeah. room to do her thing. Like, why can't we make her thing being in high school, why can't we motivate her? And I realized that's a very hard thing to do for a young girl when she's one of 120 in her grade and just needs a lot more personal time and attention than a large school can offer. So I met with Marta Chetel, who over the years had said to me on numerous occasions, when I came to talk about a particular student or a situation at school, she would say, so when are you starting a school? Oh, wow. Now, that was something I actually wanted to do from the time that I went to high school because I went to a small high school after being in a big high school. Halfway through, I switched. And that small high school really did so much for me that I decided one day I would like to establish something like this. I would like to run an institution like this where everybody can shine because everybody is seen. So um, I had that conversation with Marta Chetel and a bunch of different factors just sort of came into play all at once where I found a place and I found students, I found teachers, I found a backer, it just like all fell together because the Abishar wanted it to happen. So in that's, 2007. That's incredible. So we're going on for more than 15 years now. Entering our 17th year. That's amazing. But you said, you know, all the things fell into place. That's a lot of, you know, I'm sure that wasn't so simple. I'm sure it was a lot of work and stress. Stress on the stress. <laughs> but Baruch Hashem, we're here now. Yeah. So, Baruch has found it. And did you immediately have a vision for what this, what Baruch would be? Or did you sort of build the school around your initial students? I had a vision for it. Um, and I think one of the most important lessons that I got in running the school is every year is different because every group of students is different. And even when you only graduate one group and you get in a few new students in, in the lower grade, you know, lowest grade, um, the whole dynamic changes. So a school is an ever-evolving institution. It is not static. And that was a very big lesson for me. So my vision for the school when it started out was really more... Um, let's just take every kid who's falling through the cracks and give them a place to be and give them a place where they walk in every day and they feel like, wow, I belong here. I want to be here. I want to learn. I'm inspired about my Yiddishkeit. Um, so it went from that to a point where we were sort of collecting every type of girl who just couldn't fit into a big school. And the range of, of types of students became so vast that we then had to sort of pare back, um, really streamline our mission. And that's where we are today, which is there are 
numerous programs for girls who just can't sit in school or um, need higher level of mental health care, who want a more um, open, open school concept. We open as in less hierarchical, as in, more like they're in control yeah, of their day. Yes, more like more sort of more democratic. I don't know how else to say it, but more of a more Hasidic Fabrengen, less structured classes and bells ringing and, and regents. Um, so where we are now and where we've really landed in the last couple of years is um, we are a small school with an out of towny feel for Girls who are serious about learning, they don't have to be straight A students, but some of our, some of our students are top, top. Um, but they have to be willing to grow um, academically, social and emotionally, and spiritually, and they have to be able to be a student. They have to be able to be in school, follow rules, and I know now I'm making it sound like it's a very rigid <laughs> environment. It is not. But that, but that's the baseline. That's what makes you know. We we consulted with experts, and these are people, top people in fields of education and psychology, who said school is a safe place, or should be a safe place for kids to be. And if you know you have kids who are coming with major mental health issues and spilling that out onto others, then you're not a school. You're a mental health facility. Right. Right. By the same token, if you have kids who just want to, you know, be artsy and draw and try brain, that's also not a school. So you if you want to be a school, you know, pick your lane and stay in it. So that means, I mean, you can't make girls be who they're not. I'm assuming that's a part of the approach there. You can't change the person who are at their nature. So does that mean that you've changed, changed your sort of admission criteria for who you're looking for? Like who makes up your student body now? A little bit, yes. We've shifted our focus from we're here for everybody to we're here for students who are able to learn and be open to the growth that is possible in our environment. Got it. So there's, you know, there's flexibility at, on some level within the school, but ultimately it's a structure. There has to be a structure. Right. And Okay. So with all that, if you can, you know, you, you give a pretty, I guess, good short definition of it, but if you can boil it down even further, what would you say is the problem or the challenge that Benos Chomesh is here to, is here to attack or solve? And what would you say is the opportunity you're here to, to grasp? The problem we're trying to solve is not enough personal attention to the needs of the whole student in a large school environment. So if I'm one of 120 or 150 in my grade and I happen to need a little more academic help, I might be able to get it. But I also might not be able to get it in, in a very particular way that, that I can really digest material and then grow in my academics. If I'm struggling with something emotional, I might prefer, if I'm in a large environment, to fly under the radar and just not share it and just hold on to it. Like that student I mentioned in the beginning, I'm just going to bide my time here until I get out and then do what I want, right? We're trying to avoid that. We're trying to avoid 
teenagers being able to fly under the radar because when you're yeah when you're one of 25 in a school instead of one of 28 in a class of 150 you're you're not going unnoticed nobody goes unnoticed and it's not just about your grades it's about the whole you where are you holding socially what, what are you feeling every day what what's your background that you're coming to school with that is maybe standing in the way of your academic success. Where do you need to grow in your Yiddishkeit? There are many, many girls who are going to larger schools who are dressing the part and behind closed doors are really engaging in, in behaviors that are not aligned with Tyra values. So And they just go by unnoticed. Yeah. Nobody, nobody notices. Yeah. And that's like, you can't be one of 25 in a school with that many pairs of eyes on you and, and go unnoticed. And what's the opportunity that you think you are able to grab with your structure, with the size of your student body, not the staff you have, with your unique approach? Creating an environment that fosters ownership of one's learning experience, one's interpersonal behavior, and one's Yiddishkeit. What's something that you think, you know, Pnosomish has a unique, has a unique opportunity because of the size of the school to do these things. But I don't know if it's possible for every school to be that. I don't know if the economics of it or the staffing supply is out there for every school to be the size of Pnosomish. I mean, you've been in other school contexts as well. What do you think is something that any school, no matter how, no matter how big they are, could be doing differently today to reach girls better with, with all the constraints they have on manpower constraints on class sizes or you know, the opposite of constraints with their large class sizes and, you know, fewer resources. What's something you think any school can do today to help girls reach their goal a little bit more to help girls create a relationship to Yiddishkeit, create a relationship to Hashem, to give them pride and energy and engagement with their academics. What's something that you think any school can do? So firstly, I want to say that for some girls, the big school really works. I have, Three daughters who went through Beis Rifka, um, they enjoyed the rah-rah and the, you know, that there's constant motion. There's a huge variety of, of possible friends. Um, they, you know, there was so much positive there. So for some kids, the big school really is the place to be. I think every school, as I said, is, you know, an evolving entity. And... Humility is a huge, huge necessary ingredient. Humility in the sense of in, not assuming you know how to teach these girls. In, in being able to say, wait a minute, maybe we need to ask somebody. Maybe we're not doing this right. Um, maybe somebody else has another idea about how to approach this. And... That's one ingredient that I think is super important. The, the humility to just back up and say, I wonder what we need to change. Because that's not an admission of failure. That's an admission of growth. Right? It's a sign of growth to be able to say, well, it's not 1963 anymore. What do we need to do differently? The other thing is hiring teachers who are connectors. I say this a lot. Um, 
you know, there are teachers who are teachers. They're really good at organizing their material and presenting it, and they're articulate, and they're, they're, they're very, very talented at testing for, for mastery. That's their strength. But they don't necessarily connect with their students. Then there are other teachers who don't have a lot of talent at all with the organization or the, you know, systems, but they're real connectors. In a perfect world, I hire people who are, who are teachers and connectors. <laughs> in an imperfect world, if I have a choice between a teacher and a connector, I'm hiring a connector. Because you, you can support the connector 100%. on the other side. You can really support a connector with helping them teach. To turn someone who's not a connector into a connector, you're asking them to change their personality. The heavier lift. It's, uh, you know, much, much heavier lift. So, well, so the, the hiring of teachers that really, that want to be there and that, that really want to connect on a very, in a very real way with students that are also joyful about their own Yiddishkeit so that they project that joy and they infuse it into the learning. The learning isn't just there to memorize for a test, that the learning is there. My teacher actually loves teaching a Pasuk in Mishle and, and showing how she, she can apply it to her life. That's a teacher I want to learn from. That's a teacher I remember. I actually have a report in a box in my attic that I wrote for such a teacher. She taught us Mishle and I had to write a report in Hebrew on, on I think it was on modesty actually, on Anivos. And I had to research it in Mishle and I still have that report because of that teacher. Because you connected with her yeah, in the material. Yeah, and I don't even want to say how many years ago that was. <laughs> More than two. <laughs> so before we move on, I just wanted to check something that struck me. When you spoke about how schools are evolving things, it's the first time I've heard an educator talk about things in that way because I know that I've been in school. At this point, I'm 31. I've been in school for more years than I've not been in school still. It'll be a couple of years until I'm out of school more than I've been in school. Wait, can I interrupt you? Sure. I have been in school with the exception of one year since I'm three years old. Wow. That's a lot of time in that environment. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so I just, I, it's the first time I've heard an educator talk that way, and it's something you know when you're in school. As a kid, you always talk about how one grade is different than the other. I went to Alatera for most, most of my life, and my grade was different than the grade above me, which was different than the grade below me. And we knew we were different. And you talk to a teacher, and they'll talk about it not, I don't think, being aware of it in the sense of it in that way, but they'll talk about, oh yeah, that was a tough class. That was a tough grade. That was a tough year. But it doesn't turn into an awareness that it was tough because it was different. And because it was different, it requires a different approach. So that's the first time I've heard an educator talk about it, like logically follow through the fact that everybody knows that every grade is different. Every year is different. Every group of guys and girls is different going from year to year. It's the first time I've heard it mentioned that you have to change your school with the changing of your, of your classes and grades. Less about systems, more about adjusting to the kind of people who are actually in your school at any given time. Right. Well, if you're there for if you're there for control, right? If you're there for the system, don't change. But if you're there for connection and the people, how can you not change? Right. So we we will actually we will actually change something mid year. We will call a staff meeting mid year. And we'll say, you know, that thing we've been doing for the last six years, that's not working this year. Who has suggestions? And it's bottom up. It's not just like, I think we should do A, B, and C. It's a teacher it's, saying that I yes. noticed that this doesn't work in the class. Uh, try, let's try this. Yes. Girls respond Who, to this. Yes. 
who has an idea about how we can restructure this so that it actually works for grade nine? Um, who has a suggestion or who's doing something that works with this really difficult grade 10? Wow. So going back to the question we just asked about what do you think schools can do differently? Let's take it, you know, to the source, to the home, to parents. Education starts at home, obviously. Everything you're doing, everything you're dealing with is very often, you know, the question of how much nature versus nurture or whatever, but it starts in the home. What is something that you think parents today can be doing differently or can be adding to help their girls make a relationship to Yiddishkeit, make a relationship to Hashem and engage with the opportunity they have with them when they go to school? School's an opportunity. School's an opportunity. You know, someone's paying for you to learn something. Someone's paying for you to hang out and, you know, be with your friends. So what is something that you think parents can be doing additionally or differently today to help their girls reach their potential in this area? If anybody's heard me speak before, they're tired of hearing me say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) Um, There are two essential ingredients. One is creating a joyful home, particularly surrounding Yiddishkeit, making Yiddishkeit into something joyful, which it should be, right? How do we do that? It doesn't mean, you know, jumping and bouncing around all the time, but for a mother to express the joy in cooking a big meal for all these guests, for her to be excited about baking challah, for her to just express the joy in being a mother. So in both in word and in deed, to create a joyful environment in the home because Everybody wants to be in a happy environment. Everybody wants to be in a place where they feel good about the environment and about themselves. So that's really something that's so, so necessary, like, you know, to help us hold on to our kids and to motivate them to love learning, to love Yiddishkeit, creating a joyful home. That's number one for parents. Number two is working really, really consistently to create and build the connection with our kids. And, you know, if you look at the research on substance abuse prevention, right, one of the biggest, what are called risk factors and protective factors, one of the biggest risk factors is poor engagement with family. One of the biggest protective factors is close relationships with parents. And, It's different for mothers and fathers. We're talking about girls now, right? It's different for mothers and fathers. For mothers, it's really about, you know, the warmth and and the conversations and the, you know, perhaps it's going from manicures together. It's doing things together, creating experiences that are mother-daughter experiences. But I think we discount fathers in this equation in such a major way, and it is such a terrible oversight. I'm all ears because I'm, I'm a new father, Baruch Hashem. Mazel so, so thank you. Wow. So understanding how to relate to children as they grow up from, once they're no longer little people who just have to keep alive and fed and they have started having emotional needs and social needs. Right. So the, the, the father-daughter relationship is so, so crucial to the healthy development of girls. Fathers should convey the message to their daughters that they are lovable, valuable, 
and inc just incredible humans with, with tons of potential. And fathers really need to pay attention to their daughters, look them in the eye, tell them that they love them, spend time with them, find common interests and have conversations about those things. And it really, it's so interesting to see when you, when you see a father develop his daughter's interests in something, right? And then they become buddies about this thing and the, the validation of who she is as a girl. Get her involved in whatever your weird hobby is. That's it, you know? <laughs> but the validation of who she is as a girl comes from her father. So you want to raise healthy girls with good self-esteem who know how to set good boundaries for themselves as they grow into adulthood. Fathers need to spend time with their daughters and need to put in the energy in the relationships. Um, my favorite story about that is friends of ours. I, I've told this numerous occasions. Friends of ours were visiting. We were in the country and our house in the country was about a mile and a half walk from Shul. So Shabbos morning, you know, the two, the two mommies, you know, were hanging out with the kids and the two fathers were getting ready to go to Shul. We didn't think the little kids wanted to walk a mile and a half. And all of a sudden, I, and, and it was cold outside, it was windy. And all of a sudden, I see the 10-year-old daughter of our friend getting ready to go to Shul. And she's going, standing near the door, near, waiting for her father. And I said, um, oh, sweetie, you know, the, the mommies and the kindlach are going to stay home, and we're going to have fun, we're going to dive in together, and whatever <laughs> I said to her. And my husband chimed in, yeah, it's a long walk, you know, why do you want to go? And she actually said this in Hebrew because they had recently moved here from Israel. She said, no, you know, I want to go with my father. He, the walks to Seoul were her time for heart-to-heart -heart talks with her father. That's beautiful. That just blew me away. Now, this happened more than 20 years ago. And I just, that story is emblazoned in my mind as this is the kind of connection we need to build between fathers and daughters. Okay. Now I have goals. All right. Thank you. So staying on the topic of parents. So parents have a choice to make with their kids' education. If a parent has a daughter, eighth grade, ninth grade, either before high school or they've already had a year of high school and they're either not happy with the results or they know they're probably going to have to look at options outside of the big schools because they're worried. But maybe they're holding back because they're worried about stigma. They're worried about what it does to their daughter's conception of herself, to the conception of others about, her about their daughter, if their daughter goes to a quote-unquote alternative school, a quote-unquote non-mainstream school, such as Benos Chomesh. And Benos Chomesh, obviously, I, I don't, apologies in advance for being ignorant about this, I don't know what Benos Chomesh's reputation actually is today. I don't know what the st status is or the standards are. I don't know where it is in the constellation of all the many main schools Baruch Hashem we have in, the, in our neighborhood. But it's definitely not one of the big schools. It's definitely an alternative choice. So what do you say to a parent who is, knows they probably need to be considering these options for their daughter, but is hesitant about it because they're worried about putting her in a box, slapping a certain label on her, having herself see herself a certain way? This is a conversation I have many times a year. If a girl is struggling in school, in sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, 
it's not a bad idea to try her out in, let's say, the high school of that school because the high schools run differently. It's different people. It's a fresh start. But there are certain types of issues that probably won't be fixed if we just transfer into a, an equally large mainstream high school. Um, so if a girl is struggling with something consistently over several years, there's a very high chance that that's not going to just magically disappear. And we don't want a girl to walk into the school building every day with a sigh, feeling like, oh, this is just not good. Now, just picture if you had a job, nine to five every day, that you were not good at. And every day, your boss reminded you of that. You kept messing up just because you didn't understand the, the technicalities of the job or you just somehow weren't on the same page with the administrators. And every day, you were reminded how terrible you are at that job. But you need to stay there because you need to feed your family. So how would you feel about yourself? Not great, probably. Right. And which employees would you gravitate to? The ones that are really acing it or the ones standing around the water cooler grumbling about this misery and I'll get out of here as soon as I can? Right? Right. And how are you going to behave at home when you get home after a full day of your misery? You're going to let, let off some steam. Yeah. And so what are you going to do to let off the steam? You're gonna, you might take it out on family members or you might go seek some kind of pleasure elsewhere because work is so miserable. I mean, you could even go as far as to start drinking just to you know, drown out the misery, right? So now let's take that muscle and translate it into a school day. 8.30 to 4.30 or 5.30, whatever the school day is. It's a full day. You're not good at it. What are you gonna do? Right, so when we see a child is just not succeeding at school, to continue to put them in the same environment, square peg, round hole, miserable person in a job that doesn't work for them, however you want to depict it, that child is going to look for some way to feel validated, to feel better about herself, um, or she's going to shut down. Just go numb. So, yeah. So an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Is that the <laughs> saying? Is that, who's that Benjamin Franklin? <laughs> Not sure, but it's a good saying. Um, the problem we have is ma yaimru hagayim, right? What is everyone going to say if I take her out? How are they going to characterize her? Will she ever get into seminary? You know what I say about ma yaimru hagayim? It's really ma yaimru hagayim. What are the snobs going to say? What are the Besser and Menschen going to say about me? Why do you care? This is your daughter. You are the one solely gifted with her neshama to make sure that she gets the best possible education for her. Not for your neighbor's daughter. For her. So choose wisely. And I, I, I can't even count how many parents have come to me when their daughter's in 11th grade and say, I should have listened. 
should have listened to my friend. I should have listened to one of your teachers that I'm close with. I should have listened to you, um, you know, when I was recommended to bring her here in ninth. Now I need you to undo. <laughs> like, okay. I mean, I once had a, I once had a mother, I'm not joking, call me up. Her daughter was from out of town, so she was staying at someone's house. And it was probably December, and she said to me, do you know that my daughter has not davened in 770 once since she got to your school? What are you doing about it? How are you going to fix this? And I paused for a moment because, you know, sometimes people will say things to me, and I'm like, I, I, I have to own this. I have to own this. <laughs> and then I had a, a lightning rod moment where I was like, no, I don't have to own this. <laughs> and I said... Let's see. It took you 16 years to get her to a place where she doesn't want to daven in shul. And you're expecting me to have undone it in four months? I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. Huh. But really, the earlier, that we, the earlier that we intervene with a child that's not happy in school, the better chance we have of really getting them into adulthood, feeling good about themselves feeling good about their Yiddishkeit, feeling successful in their learning, and feeling like they can conquer the world. And we've had students go to seminary in Yerushalayim, in, in Melbourne, Florida, Pittsburgh, Montreal. Coming to our school is not a stamp on your head. Uh, Italy, it's not a stamp on your head that you are stuck in this box. Every person is stuck in boxes of their own making. Right? That's why we talk about Yitzias Mitzrayim, Pesach time. Right? What's the box you've made for yourself? And it's your, you know, your job as a parent to help your child pull herself out of that box. Right now she's in the box of, I'm a failure. So you're arguing that parents should be more worried about the cost and the missed opportunity of not getting your girl into a place where they can actually be productive and sort of be good at their job, but the way you use the muscle where they can feel good about themselves, where they can feel good about their future, where they can feel connected, that it's more important to worry about that than it is to worry about any kind of sort of short-term stigma. But I imagine parents are also concerned about influence, about relationships. Like it or not, there's the idea that at a school, like Benin School Minister, there's going to be more exposure to various aspects of secular culture, more exposure to girls who are having different kinds of struggles, and that may influence their child in some negative way. How do you respond to that part of the hesitancy and fear? So there, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. One is if a girl is unhappy and she feels like an outsider, she's going to gravitate to the unhappy outsiders <laughs> in wherever she's in school, right? So if she has 100 girls in her grade, 50 girls in her grade, 10 girls in her grade, She's going to gravitate to the unhappy outsiders. And you're saying no matter, no matter the school, there's, there's enough unhappy outsiders yes. in any school to create negative influences. Yes. However, however, there definitely is the point of, but in a big school, there is more choice of friends. And that is true. There's, you know, nothing I can, nothing I can answer to that is an absolute truth. Um, that a girl who is in a larger school might find some healthier friends, even if she is sort of not feeling that good about herself. But that's really 
that's really the bottom line. The bottom line is kids gravitate to, to other kids who are like-minded and who are feeling similarly. So that's a risk no matter where your daughter is. Um, the one advantage of a small school, and, and again, this doesn't have to be my small school, but the one advantage of a small school is that you are noticed. And if you are gravitating towards unhealthy behaviors or friends, you will be seen. And therefore, the adults there can, can try to intervene and help out and give the individual attention that's needed to the girl who is seeking out unhealthy behaviors or unhealthy friendships. And perhaps this is a child that needs to talk this out in therapy or needs to talk with a mashpia, um, needs something interesting to do with her life so that she doesn't feel the need to gravitate to these unhealthy things. You know, sometimes you put a tennis racket in the hands of a kid that's on social media and she goes, hey, this feels a lot better. <laughs> Who knew moving a little bit could feel exactly. good? <laughs> yeah. So if we could boil it down, you're saying if you're, if you're considering our school, it's because the big school is not working for your daughter and the risk is just as big keeping her there as it is in my school. Yes. And when, then when you send her to my school in 11th grade, I have a lot more to undo. <laughs> <laughs> and we like uh, doing. We're right, not, undoing, right. not so much. You want to build. You don't want to be like, you know, Absolutely. demolishing. Exactly. Yes, because, you know, an interesting thing that we found is it takes approximately three months for a girl to warm up to our way of educating because she's used to being on guard and she's used to being defensive because she hasn't been successful. So an adult approaching her usually means she's in trouble. Being sent to the principal's office doesn't mean a high five and a, you know, piece of chocolate. It does in our school, but in most schools it doesn't. So it takes about three months to earn their trust. And it takes about six months to a year to undo really negative um, work habits, um, attitudes towards learning. So, yeah. So the sooner the better. Yeah. So on the, on the topic of negative influences, every school is fighting this battle. I'm sure Ms. Homish is, is no different in this way. The influence of secular culture on our kids today. Kids today have more and easier access to secular media of any kind. Social media has kicked that into hyperdrive because kids aren't just consuming content. They're also forming parasocial relationships with internet celebrities and, and YouTubers and Instagrammers. It's a whole different world now. And that stuff can be, you know, neutral to negative and it could also be really bad it can be bad in a lot of different ways that cause bad habits that cause bad ways of when i say bad i mean unhealthy as in dangerous ways of seeing themselves and seeing the world you can't stop girls from accessing this stuff it's too easy to get on the internet that fight's over right i, I even tell parents take away your daughter's phone see what happens she'll yeah. have another one in 24 hours and, if, and you won't even know about it yeah so that fight's over so the question is really what is Benoschomish's approach to handling that exposure, to handling the influence that, that exposure has on your girls, on their view of themselves, on their view of Yiddishkeit, on their view to the world around them. We live in a world, as you described, where we have very little control over what our kids are exposed to once we put a device in their hands. 
So firstly, I would say the longer you can delay putting a device in your child's hand, do it. And I know that there's a program called MUST, and I, you know, call a cover to them to, for really bringing awareness to parents. And I see with my, with my children's children that, you know, my children are trying to delay giving phones to their kids because, because of the damage that it does. Again, I want to go back to the family of origin being the strongest influence and the strongest protective factor for kids today because even if they do have exposure, knowing what the family's priorities are, knowing really well where the parents stand on, on certain things without the parents being judgy and, and punitive about it, but really understanding where the parents stand um, is important. So it's important to you know, impart that in, again, non-preaching, non-judgmental ways, but you know, for kids to see it. When, when our kids see us holding the phone all the time, constantly scrolling, you know, we're teaching them that this is good. Right? So, so that's number one. And creating family time. Um, one of my kids uh, made a, took a shoebox and went out and bought a little tiny padlock and built a phone jail, <laughs> which was about 10 years old. That's great. Um, because, you know, the siblings and I, I, just as guilty, everyone was on their phones all the time. We'd sit down to eat supper and everyone brought their, brought their little uh, electronic friends with them. So she made a phone jail and we had to put the phones in the phone jail and she only she had the key. I love that. Yep. It was very cute and very powerful message. Um, so it's important for us as adults to model that the phone is not the most important thing and that we get our information from books and from conversations with people. So, so that's one. In terms of mitigating the effects of social media on kids, really talking about it in school. Having teachers who are able to have these conversations with students. So meaning if there's a topic that's being discussed on social media or if there's some TV show or movie that came out that has a topic or a theme, teachers have to know about it and yes. engage with it. Yes. And, and I'll tell teachers, you know, in the beginning of the year when we have our staff orientation, I'll say if a student asks you a question and you're not comfortable answering it, that's fine. You have choices. You don't have to shut the conversation down. You can say, I'm going to look into that. I don't know much about it, but I'm going to look into it. You can say, that sounds like a great topic to have in your discussion class with Mrs. Gorkin. You can um, call a rov on the spot. We've had teachers that, that did that. That's great. Call a rov on the spot. Get the rov onto the screen and ask a Shyla. Um, you can give the student a job to research it in books or in halacha. And... You know, if we, if we try to erase it or pretend it doesn't exist, it still exists. So we have to really face it head on. We have to have these conversations. And I had a conversation at the beginning of this school year where a student said, that's it, I'm done, I'm deleting Snapchat. And I said, you're deleting Snapchat? I'm deleting Instagram. I took out my phone and I deleted Instagram. I haven't been on since. Wow. And I said, I challenge... Everyone to follow Chaimushka's example 
and delete something off your phone. You don't need it. You have a full life. You don't need this. You want it. It's fun. Okay. There's lots of other fun to be had that's really healthier fun. Um, but yes, I think we need to talk to kids about this and encourage them to be in the real world and be less on social media. Today, a lot of young people are more involved in politics or a adolescent version of politics than they used to in the past. Social media is very political these days. People share TikTok. Everyone's sharing their opinions about things and telling people how actually they're oppressed and it turns out that everything is wrong and everything is bad. There's a lot of doomerism about the climate, a lot of, you know, you're, if you're a woman, the whole world is out to get you. There's a lot of that on social media. So yeah. I imagine girls can you know, come away from their time spent on those topics, on those apps, watching these videos, thinking that, yeah, actually I am oppressed and the, the Tyrant Yiddish Guide and my community is our agents of that oppression. And actually all these different movements for rights for different kinds of people are actually justified and true. And we're living some kind of totalitarian nightmare. So, you know, young people can feel these things very strongly and very emotionally. So this is one of the ways that social media can influence is making people develop political slash social opinions that contradict and push against the terror view of the world, our family view of the world. So how do you deal with that? Right. So firstly, I'm, I'm remembering a conversation I had with a student a few years ago when there was a young girl who, you know, woke up the world about climate change and, you know, kids were protesting on the steps of different government, um, the government offices, yeah, protesting about climate change and et cetera. And I had a student that was very, con you know, very social justice conscious, you know, global warming and very concerned. Um, and she said, can we do that? Can our school do that? Now, first of all, I was really happy that she felt comfortable enough to ask me that question. That is good. Right? I mean, she didn't see you as like an automatic right. you know, agent of opposition. Exactly. Or part of the totalitarian <laughs> regime you spoke of. <laughs> um, so I said, wow, that's, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, when, when I have a question about whether I should be involved in something in the world politically, my go-to place is the Rebbe. What would the Rebbe say about this? And I know for a fact that when there were much bigger stakes, such as Jews in Russia, um, Eretz Yisrael, the Rebbe was never a, you know, ne never encouraging people to protest and go about things in a, in a combative way. He encouraged us to do things in a quiet way and in a, in a much more effective way that would actually create the kind of change that we're looking for. So Built, don't destroy. Exactly. So, so along those lines, what do you think we could do as a school to help out? in that area, you know, if, if climate change is something that's a concern to you. And, and I remember during that year, kids in school were so anxious that the world was coming to an end. Like the, they had created this anxiety around what was going to happen to their world. They weren't gonna grow into adulthood. Like there was this real anxiety for kids that were aware of what was going on. 
And this lovely young lady started a recycling program in our school. She ordered from whatever, I, I don't remember what agency, what government agency it was, she ordered blue bins and green bins and gave a whole presentation to the school about recycling and the importance of it. And, and it's something that, how can that be a bad thing, right? Yeah. It, and it gave her a feeling of agency that we weren't squashing her and saying, no, this is bad. We we're actually saying, let's see what you can come up with. It you weren't saying really, uh, global warming is a liberal conspiracy. Sit down. This is no, crazy. What, what's the point of that? What, what is the point of saying that? That goes nowhere good. Um, we hung up posters on the walls about, you know, what to put in which trash can. And, and it was lovely. And it actually worked in our favor because then we started having, you know, mandatory putting things in recycling bags. So we were all ready for it. Because <laughs> we're ahead of the curve. Um, and, and just as regards, you know, I mean, I have to address the female oppression thing. and you know. That ties into a larger set of issues as well. Right. There's a lot of identity politics today yeah. where you see yourself as uniquely oppressed because of some aspect of you, of your nature, of your, right. of your personality, of your gender expression. You know, there's a lot of different Vi- ways. A lot of, of victim mentality, yeah. too. So, so I have to say, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm unique in this. I have never felt oppressed one day in my life because I am a woman. Well, you didn't grow up with having people telling you that you should feel oppressed. I grew up as a tomboy. I played sports. I climbed trees. I did gymnastics. I, I had a ton of fun as a kid, and I was not a girly girl. And I never felt like I had to be any particular way I just had to be me, and that was nurtured by my parents. As an adult, I have never felt oppressed. I don't feel oppressed because I don't have to go to shul three times a day to daven. (laughs) And I don't feel oppressed because I don't have to be the main breadwinner of my home, but I can sit in my house, and now it's my grandchildren. But, you know, back in the day, it was watch my children learn to crawl and watch the light go on in their eyes when they figure out something new, I, that never made me feel oppressed. That made me feel so grateful. I think as women, we have to model the joy and the gratitude and the feeling of privilege that we have being Jewish women, right? I, I, I don't feel oppressed when I serve a beautiful Shabbos meal to my guests and I get tons of compliments on my cooking. <laughs> I do not feel oppressed. And maybe there's something wrong with me. I don't know. I don't think there is. I think it's a pretty common experience. I, yeah. You mentioned, you said modeling. So you're yeah. saying that the goal is to help your students, help your girls see that this is a path of joy, not a path of... Absolutely. And I've said it in classes and I've said it in private conversations with students. Like I've had students say to me, don't you feel like you're missing something because you can't go to the beach dressed like people dress on the beach. I said, no, I feel so grateful. I don't want to go to the beach dressed like that. Um, don't you feel like you're, you know, missing something? You, like you never went clubbing or like, they'll bring up all these things. I'm like, my life, Baruch Hashem, is so full. 
I just don't feel, no, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I don't feel like I'm missing it. I just don't. And I think for them to hear it authentically from the adults that they trust, it's a powerful message. To hear, to hear our, our betachin, that the Eveshah will take care of the universe. Right? Powerful message. And we really, you know, I, we really have to be authentic about it. And we have to be connected with them in order for them to absorb the message. So we spoke about social media, about, about secular culture, about how you can't keep it out. But there are other behaviors that you do have some nominal level of control. School has rules. You can't do this. You can't do that. And obviously there's the sneeze issue. You know, every girl's school has that. Everybody's uh, favorite word. So obviously you have rules and you have to enforce your rules to some level. But there's, there's a lot of gray. There's a lot of, you know, before somebody crosses some bright red line that, that makes it impossible for them to be in your school in a constructive way, there's a lot of steps, a lot of gradations up that ladder of breaking the rules. What is the Bnos Chomish approach and what do you think is a generally a healthier approach to rule enforcement you know, for teenage girls? So firstly, we try not to make rules that are impossible to enforce, right? So there are things that girls will do outside of school that we can't possibly, you know, we're not, we're not monitoring everybody's every move, every moment of their lives, right? right. I mean, but sometimes you are made aware of something that happened outside of yes, school. Yes, yes, and I'll address that in a moment. Um, so. We try to make rules that aren't ridiculous, that aren't oppressive. Um, you know, in the beginning, we had a lot of rules about nail polish and about jewelry, etc. And actually, my husband was the wise one that said, it's a girl's school. You're not raising Bahram. It's a girl's school. It's probably okay if they wear some nail polish. So, you know, we went through different iterations of what nail polish is allowed and et cetera. But, but, but that was a really good point. So they'll wear nail polish. The sub girls I express mean, themselves. Yeah. This, I mean, I, I, I challenge you to find me, to walk down Kingston Avenue and find me 10 women who are not wearing nail polish. Right? It's just something everybody does now. And for us to make a big deal about it, for girls, I, I don't find that to be where I should put my focus, right? I want to be able to say to a girl when she walks into school, good morning, so good to see you, right? If I'm focused on something like her nail polish, first thing I have to say to her is, here's some cotton balls and nail polish remover, go to the bathroom, come out when there's nothing on your nails. I don't want to do that, right? So school rules are school rules. They're not Tznias rules. We don't talk about them in terms of Tznias rules. The school rule is you have to wear your uniform. You have to wear the correct uniform correctly, which means that, you know, the top button has to be buttoned and the, you know, whatever you're wearing, etc. I don't make a big deal about the shoes that they wear. Wear whatever shoes you want. I really try to pick my battles carefully. But there are, as you said, there are things that are problematic. There are things that girls could do in a school that I would have to call a girl in and say, listen, if you want to be here, that is a line you can't cross. And I'll leave it to people's imaginations. But 
if we don't make them crazy with nonsensical rules, then when it comes to a rule that's really important, we have a little more clout. I think the bigger the school, the more rules there are going to be just by, by default. You have more people that you have to keep in line and it's gonna be harder. We have a little more wiggle room. And we even have rules in school that are there for some people and not for other people. For example, um, you can't have a laptop in school. But if we have a student that has a physical issue, can't take notes, or taking notes is a big struggle, can she have a laptop in school? We discuss it, right? But everybody in school is aware that if there's a rule that's somebody else's rule, it's not necessarily yours. Right. Right? And if you need an exception or you need a rule made that's yours specifically, you will, you will have that made for you. We will, you know, we'll be looking out for you. It's like you don't take all your kids to get shoes when one kid needs shoes. Right. So that, those are rules in the school. Right. But, you know, the girls exist outside of school as well. Yes, they do. <laughs> and I'm sure sometimes it's brought to your attention that... Yes girls did something that crosses the lines yes. outside of school. Yes. So you can't, you don't control their lives outside of school, but what they do outside of school affects them in school and affects, and affects their friends and it affects the environment. Sure. So what is the approach there? The approach there is very individual. Um, if a girl does something outside of school and it's brought to our attention, the first thing I'll do is have a conversation with her. Now, I can have a conversation with her because every day I said, smiling hello to her and I've had conversations with her about nothing at all and about positive things. So you, have now, a, you have an actual relationship. Yes. So now I can have this conversation with her and I'll usually start out very vaguely and say, so must say Shabbos, <laughs> what was that about? And then usually I get filled in um, and I'll say, so how do I know about it? And she'll say, yeah, how do you know about it? I'll say, listen, you know, we live in a community where people have eyes and mouths. And when they see something, they say something. They say a lot of things. Yes. Now, most of those people are actually doing it for your benefit. Okay? There might be a tiny majority of people who are just, you know, just like gotcha people. But most of those people that are coming to me, it's out of concern. They saw you in a, in a situation that was a compromising situation, and they're concerned for you. But how did they know it was me? I don't know. Lucky guess. <laughs> I don't know. But they knew. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what happened. Let's talk about what happens to our school's reputation when our girls do A, B, and C. Let's talk about happen what happens with you if that behavior is repeated. Because if that behavior is repeated, you're showing a lack of respect for the school. And if it's something that is not an acceptable behavior in the community, you're showing a lack of respect for the community. Now, you may not want to be part of this community when you're an adult. You may move out, move somewhere else. You may say, I'm modern orthodox. I will live in, name the town, right? 
But right now you live here. And it is, we, we always talk about respect being the cornerstone of our school. Respect for each other, respect for staff, respect for the property, respect for the community, right? This behavior does not show respect for the community. And part of being in our school is showing basic respect for all of those entities. So now the question is, how badly do you want to be here? So you're putting the ball in her court. Yeah. You're saying, yeah. if the school's important to you, if this, if this school makes you happy, then you want to stay here. Right. No, okay. this, is, this, is, this is your choice. And so I've had, I remember a conversation with a girl who said, okay, I won't do that behavior between Troy Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> and she gave me the actual parameters. Troy Avenue and whatever, New York, right. Nostrand. And then she gave me the, the north-south coordinates. <laughs> and it was very cute. And I was like, I was so appreciative of that. I said, you know, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, that's a good start. <laughs> <laughs> all young people are going to do things. They're going to do dumb things. They're going to do dangerous things. They're going to do harmful things. Sometimes, unfortunately, those things go from acting out to a habit to an addiction. Or that activity becomes a relationship with a circle of people or an individual person that causes harm to them. So wh what is the approach to, of the school when they're made aware that this activity has become serious? So back to the idea of staying in our lane and remembering that we're a school. When we see behavior like that, we have to realize that this is probably something that needs to go to a higher level of care. So that might be therapy. It might be even a residential treatment center. It might be taking a break from school and doing some you know, some self-work in, in intensive therapy that's not a residential center. Um, it might be a change of school. It might be that because you're in this school, you felt a little too much freedom. You got involved with a crowd, crowd that, that really is, is dragging you into places you shouldn't be. And maybe it's better for you to be in, you know, out of town because your crowd is here. Um, to, to that, I want to say, if there's someone in the school that's dragging others down, that's something that has to be addressed, because I heard a hira from um, Martachtal, which I think she got, I don't remember if she got it from Rabbi Chadakov or Rabbi Jacobson, um, that if a child is doing a behavior that's you know, contrary to Tyra, but privately, that's one, that's one situation. If they're influencing others, then you have to reconsider their presence in the school. So, but, you know, but I'm talking about where, you know, a child is doing something outside of school that's not connected with the kids in school. But but harm, they're harming themselves in some exactly. way. Exactly. And, and, and for that, you really have to consider what are the other options. This is not, this is um, beyond the purview of the school to quote-unquote, fix, right? And we have, you know, we, we watch the progression of students as if we see someone spiraling downward. And one of my staff members always says, if we are working harder than the student, something is wrong with this picture. So, you know, when we start to see that pattern where we're 
constantly vigilant about the student's behavior, constantly calling a parent, calling the student in to discuss what's going on. That's a red flag for us. That's, that's when we know this is out of our lane. Okay. So to finish off, what's something that excites you, that makes you hopeful about the future of Noschomish and in general, our community's approach to education and the future of our girls? I think our shift now to really working with the girls who want to be in school is exciting because, first of all, it's much more gratifying <laughs> than dragging girls to class. Um, so that's, I guess, selfish. Um, it's not selfish. I mean, if staff have the energy to come show up to work in the morning, they're going to they're be better teachers for the girls. Right, absolutely. So, yeah, it's better for my staff. It's, it's, it's always best for people to be in an environment where they fit best, right? So if we are now um, narrowing the field to taking the students that fit best and finding places for those that don't fit best, which is what we do. We don't just say, sorry, not a fit. We actually help people find other programs for their daughters. Um, I, I think, you know, everybody, everybody does best where they fit best. Um, so I'm very hopeful and excited about that going forward. Um, I'm always excited to see what our students will do in the future. And I love corresponding with our graduates. We have WhatsApp groups. There's an alumni association. Um, we get visits from students. When students you know, get married and have babies, they send us pictures and we, we share them with our current students. Um, I'm excited about something new that we're doing that I just got confirmation on today. Oh, wonderful. Okay. This is breaking news. Breaking news. Okay. Christ Insider, breaking news source. Benos Chomesh will now be offering AP courses for 11th and 12th graders. That's amazing. College for... level AP courses. We just got approved for three courses and we're waiting on approval for two more courses. That's fantastic. Model tough. Yep. Super exciting. So um, that's big news. And it's, it's something we're very excited about because why not give the girls college credit for their hard work that they're doing in high school? Yeah. A lot of girls are going on to colleges and to get degrees. And even the girls that are going to seminary, they're getting credits in seminary. We're just adding to those yeah. credits. So um, that's really exciting. Um, lots of other stuff in the works. But for now, um, these are some of the things that I'm very hopeful about. Okay. And for education in general in our communities... So include our school in this. Um, really focusing on fo focusing more and more on the connection and the authenticity in the relationships between the adults and the students. Um, and the adults, I I'm not saying the teachers. I'm saying all of the adults. Um, our secretaries, our administrator, our special ed people, our guidance counselor, they are no different in terms of how we train um, and who's expected to interact with the students. So I know that, you know, Baruch Hashem now, the idea of connection, I mean, this is not a new idea. This is a Jewish idea, right? Yeah. This is everything the Rebbe taught us about how to interact with others, right? Be authentic. That's it. Love, Every, I mean, all you have to do is just watch some gem videos and <laughs> see how the Rebbe faced people and the humor with which he dealt with them, the authenticity, the, the 
getting into people's headspace and speaking their language, whether it's their intellectual language or their actual language. Um, so like we don't need psychology books to learn about that. Yet now it's all the rage in the world of psychology, connection, attachment, and all that. So if, you know, if that's what speaks to you, fine. I don't need to look farther than the Rebbe for my <laughs> understanding of how we need to connect. But, but that's it. And I, I do see schools working more and more. I'm on a chat with wonderful high school principals from all around the world um, of the Chabad girls' high schools and more and more focused on connection and authenticity in the relationship. And, and that's really where it's at. Beautiful. That's very, very encouraging. Thank you, Mrs. Gorkin. Really, really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to Mrs. Gorkin for joining us on the Crown Heights Insider Podcast. That was a fun conversation on my end, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you did enjoy listening to it, I hope you will tell your friends about it and encourage them to give it a listen, give us a shot, and subscribe. As we mentioned at the top, if you have a question or a comment or concern, please send us an email at podcast at crownheights.info. And if you have a question for Mrs. Gorkin, we will hopefully feature it in a wrap-up episode coming very, very shortly because we're nearing the end of our season. Thank you again for joining us tonight, and we are very, very much looking forward to seeing you again next Wednesday. <laughs>